the launching of the First Crusade in 1095 marked an important new departure in religious history. More than six centuries had passed since the end of the Roman Empire in the West. I am standing in the round church of the Holy Sepulchre in Cambridge, built in 1130 and modelled on the original church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. It is a vivid visual reminder of the way in which the Christian holy places captured the religious imagination of people in the 11th and 12th centuries. I have come to Cambridge to interview Professor Jonathan Riley Smith, a leading authority on the Crusades. Well, can I begin with that stock, simple but difficult historian's question, why? In 1095, Urban II breaches the First Crusade, but the Muslims have been in control of Jerusalem for four and a half centuries. Why does it happen at that point? There have been all sorts of uh, theories written about why the Crusades happened, and to be perfectly honest, I think that... It's a question which is, it's not that it's impossible to answer, it is that actually, in the late 11th century, Western Europe took a step that no one could possibly have expected. It was preceded by one course of events and one development which came together. The course of events was a growing obsession with the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, expressing itself in pilgrimages, which from the 1020s onwards were almost constant, and at certain times there were great waves of pilgrims travelling to the east, the 1030s, for instance. And not only pilgrims going, but returning with relics, building churches actually based on the dimensions of the Holy Sepulchre. So throughout the 11th century, there's a kind of rising obsession with Jerusalem, with the Holy Sepulchre, expressed in pilgrimage. And secondly, in the early 1080s, that is a decade and a half before the preaching of the First Crusade, when Central Europe was in fact torn by a civil war, one, one forgets just how intense and violent the investiture controversy became. The papacy granted to the armies a very remarkable woman called Matilda of Tuscany, who was a fanatical supporter of papal reform and whose armies were marching up and down central Italy, granted to them remission of sins in exchange for fighting. Now, this was a step unprecedented in Christian history in which the Pope and his agents were saying that you could do penance for your sins, that is, pay back to God for your sins, through the exercise of arms. Actually, in this, equating fighting with prayer, works of mercy, fasting. But as I sometimes say to my students, the difference between the age of faith and ours is not that these people were better than us. In many ways, they were a great deal worse. The difference was they worried about it. And they really worried. They were locked into a world from which any responsible man, lord, let's say, as head of a family, whatever, in a world racked by blood feuds, vendettas, by violence, and all the rest of it. I mean, leaving aside the issue of 
sleeping with your wives. They were locked into a world from which they could not escape without escaping their responsibilities. Very easy to say, go off to a monastery, withdraw to a monastery, withdraw from the world. Not so easy to fulfil if you're the head of a family. They were locked into that world and absolutely obsessed with sin and its consequences. And they are presented quite suddenly with a way of at least temporarily wiping the slate clean, performing actions with which they were thoroughly familiar, going on pilgrimage and fighting. So we have the general spiritual climate which you've described yeah. to us in the 11th century. How important do you think Urban II's sermon at Clermont was as the trigger that set things going? I don't think, actually, there was one trigger. I mean, Urban spent a year travelling through France and French-speaking territory. I reckon he travelled about 2,000 miles in that time. He was already in his 60s. He preached all the time. There were private meetings as well with great lords. I've actually mapped those first crusaders I know, and an awful lot of them come within two or three days' march of Urban's itinerary. You are dealing with the late 11th and 12th centuries with a very theatrical and melodramatic age in which everything is expressed in theatrical terms. And it's the same with Urban. Now, just imagine, Urban is accompanied everywhere by a flock of archbishops and bishops, few cardinals. Each of these will have a, a train, a riding household. The Pope's entourage would stretch over miles of countryside, miles of countryside. They timed their arrival. I just don't know how they did this in 1095 to 6. They timed their arrival in towns to coincide with great feasts. So, for instance, they're at Saint-Gilles for the Feast of St. Giles. St. Giles's body is still at the Abbey of Saint-Gilles. They are at Le Puy, which is the greatest Marian shrine of the age, for the Feast of the Assumption. They are at Poitiers for the Feast of St. Hilary. How they did this, I simply do not know. But anyway, this huge train stretches through the countryside. It comes into a town. These small towns would have never seen anyone of any importance in living memory. Never seen the king. The Pope then puts his tiara on. Now, at that time, it's not a tiara as we know it, the sort of bulbous thing. It's a kind of Phrygian cap with a single band of gold with jewels in it around. He puts this on. He rides through the town. He consecrates basilicas and cathedrals with masses of people there, and then he preaches the cross everywhere he goes. And so one has to ask oneself, wow, how does the news spread? And I think it spreads through kindred. I think there is a way in which the news of the Pope's preaching spreads out from his itinerary through family networks. Now, i tell you an amazing thing. If you look at First Crusaders and if you look at them by family, by kindred, you find they are concentrated in certain families. 
And that actually is very helpful because while it is quite impossible to get into the mind of anyone in the late 11th or 12th centuries, we don't even know what they looked like. It is possible to say something about collective ideas. Say if you've got a family and then you look and you see are the traditions of the of attachment to certain saints, is there a tradition of pilgrimage to Jerusalem, is there a tradition of association with certain reformed monastic houses and so on, you can actually, in some cases at any rate, see that a particular kindred has the sort of traditions that would make it susceptible, I mean would make it responsive to the Pope's appeals. But when you turn to isolated crusaders, that is, people who take the cross in a family in which there's no other member of the family taking the cross, as often as not, or not, their mother or their wife comes from one of the families with collective group crusaders. Preaching is amazing what happens. I mean, the crusade preachers in, by the, in the late 12th and 13th centuries will arrive at a location where they've decided to preach. Everything is done to heighten a sense of drama. Some of them had a great canvas screen with Muslims desecrating the Holy Sepulchre and they would preach against the background of this. The proceedings would start with mass being said in the presence of as many senior ecclesiastics as they could get together from the locality. Then the papal general letter, summoning crusade, would be read and translated. And these letters are extremely emotional. Extremely emotional. So it'd be read, translated out, and the, we know that the preachers carried copies of these letters in their saddlebags. And then the preacher would launch it to his homily, which would be quite short but would end with what was called an invocatio, which is a very, very emotional appeal to join the crusade. Now, at that point, in Humbert of Romans' treatise on crusade preaching, written in the 1260s, we put in the margin next to invocatio, cantus. At this moment, a choir strikes up. It's like a Billy Graham assembly. And people then leap to their feet, you see, and come forward to take the cross. And there's a great pile of already made-up crosses, and um, sometimes pins, so they can pin these cloth crosses onto their chests. And that the whole purpose of this melodrama, of this theatre, of the language that is used, is, I have to stress, to make people make spontaneous decisions in a society in which spontaneity is frowned on. I find this fascinating. I mean, we uh, have to be wary of anachronism, of course, but there are perhaps uh, closer analogies than I thought with, uh, indeed, what is happening in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries with the conversionist preaching yes. of uh, evangelicals and missionaries. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the great fallacies of reform historians and their reformation historians, and they are now changing their tune on it, is, you know, the belief that preaching was something that only came with Protestantism. <laughs> Whereas, actually, the early Protestant preachers were building on a long tradition of populist preaching, not only with regard to the Crusades, but, of course, the one I know about, the theme I know about, is in Crusades, which stretches right back into the 11th century. Was it ever, in a simple sense, a sort of war with Islam? What is the defining thing is not the Muslim, 
but the Holy Sepulchre. The Muslims happened to be in charge of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Muslims happened to recover the Holy Sepulchre under Saladin in 1187. But what was important was this relic. <laughs> that was what was important, not whoever, you know, only secondarily was it the Muslim who was important. Yes, I've also seen it. It's an mm. incredible building, isn't it? Yes. And I found it fascinating that Saladin left it there after he recaptured Jerusalem in 1187. The history of, of religious sites is, is a, quite an interesting one. I mean, that was not, of course, for Muslims, the kind of site... I think they recognised that the Christian population of Palestine and the Christian pilgrims needed that site. So they didn't convert it into a mosque, which they did with quite a lot of the churches. But even in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, there are church mosques. In Acre, there was a... must have been Shiite, because it was supposedly an oratory to Ali, which was in the town with an eastern apse. So Christians and Muslims were actually worshipping in the same building. The Cathedral of the Holy Cross in Acre, which had been a mosque, they retained the mihrab, and Muslims could go in and pray. So it was quite common for there to be, on both sides actually, a certain toleration, even kind of syncretic attachment to certain shrines. There's a, a lot of toing and froing. While people retain their religious attachments, nevertheless, that region was one where there was such a mixture. And anyway, possibly still in the uh, 12th century, a Christian majority amongst the indigenous in Palestine. That's recently been suggested that Islamization in, in Palestine between the 7th and 11th centuries had not proceeded as quickly as we used to suppose, and that there was large parts of Palestine were still Christian. So despite the headlines, obviously, of conflict between Christianity and Islam, one can, uh, in reality, speak of a sort of significant coexistence, perhaps particularly in more peaceful periods in the 11th and 12th centuries. Yes, it is extremely interesting to me that the character of crusaders change when they get to the East. Before I get on to the issue of Muslims, let's take Jews. Now, you have these pogroms against Jews in the Rhineland and elsewhere, preceding almost every crusade to the east. Disapproved of by the church, church tries to stop it, but taking place. But when they get to the east, after an initial period, which is anyway now up for being argued about, because the idea that they massacred Jews in Jerusalem has been disproved by the great Jewish historian Goitein, when they get to the east, they appear to have tried to experiment with Dhimma, that is the Muslim regulations for children of the book, retaining Dhimma on Jews, lifting it off Christians and imposing it on Muslims. But in fact, the situation of Jews in the Kingdom of Jerusalem was fairly favourable. There is, as Joshua Prava wrote this history of the Jews and pointed out, massive migration into Palestine under the Crusaders by Jews. The great Maimonides was teaching in Acre. The Jewish tribunals in Acre and Tyre, their rescripts are, are still surviving. So it's as if these people's personality had changed. I mean, in the West, they bashed these people 
In the East, while you can't say they were tolerant, I mean, Jews, Muslims, non-Catholic Christians live under legal disabilities, they're certainly, it's much more like the kind of protected religions you'd find in an Islamic state. But still raises a question, why they are so different in the West? And my theory, for what it's worth, is this, that every holy war, whether Christian or Muslim, or even if you take radical Buddhism, because there is this rather warlike form of Buddhism, not just the pacifist kind, turns on itself, turns back on the society which generated it. And it becomes clear that you can only be successful if you are fighting out of a purified, uniform society. And I think myself that, like all forms of holy war, very rapidly crusading turned inwards and saw the Jews as an alien body which would have to be eliminated if Christianity was to be successful extraliminally, I mean outside its borders. And it's fascinating to me that when crusading starts going really badly from the late 12th century onwards, so crusades against heretics, crusades against Catholic opponents, the papacy and so on increase, that, I mean, the, the less successful it is on the frontiers, the more concentration there is inside. And this is precisely the same with modern Islamism. The great figure, the ancient ideologue of modern Islamism is a man called Ibn Taymiyyah. And Ibn Taymiyyah was actually writing around 1300 and he maintained that for the jihad to be successful it had first to turn inwards and it had to destroy Shiism, which was heresy, and it had to purify Islamic society. And only when Islamic society was uniform and purified would the world be conquered. And Uzama bin Laden quotes Ibn Taymiyyah constantly. Constantly. To recap a bit, what do you think kept it going so long? For two centuries, even if we just take it from the First Crusade to the Fall of Acre, much longer than that if we think of the longer-run impulse of crusading. Oh, I, the, the, crusades, the Crusades lasted a very long time indeed. Now, crusading, if you define a crusade carefully... You could say that the Crusades proper, fulfilling the various conditions for crusade, went on being preached till the end of the 16th century. The last crusade proper is probably the Armada of 1588. Even if one is simply talking in terms of popularity, the most popular centuries for crusades are the 13th and 14th. Between 1200 and 1500, there is barely a year when there is not a crusade going on somewhere. It begins to decline in the 15th century, and of course the Reformation takes a big chunk of Europe away from the crusading movement, although Luther was in fact preaching something not unlike a crusade, and there was even a French Calvinist in the 1570s who tried to produce his own Calvinist version of crusading, minus Pope, minus indulgence, and so on. It is a very important it's, context it's, for understanding what's happening in the Reformation period. Oh, yes, 
But that the fact is now, this movement, however you look at it, is long-lasting. It also is in space terms, since it's Finland is created out of crusades, Swedish crusades, right through the 14th century. So from the north to Africa to where, 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 whatever, the, the Goa in India in the 16th century was in the hands of the Portuguese military orders. They were running Goa. So wherever you look, you're dealing with an immense movement. What kept it going? It struck a chord, and that chord was a continuous one. It remained penitential, even to the end it's penitential. But I think if it had retained the radical nature of the early Crusades in penance terms, it might not have lasted. What happened was that chivalry diluted the penitential and made it more acceptable. So that whereas for a first crusader, the crusade is primarily not about service to God or service to the church or service to Christendom, but it's primarily about self-sanctification. By Humbert of Romont, the great writer of preaching treatise in the 1260s, the crusade is about service to Christ. That's a kind of chivalric view, but that service can only be effective if it's penitential. So you see how the penitential element has been diluted and made, in a sense, more acceptable. I mean, because that radical... I mean, you can easily see how the early one could not have kept its intensity. So chivalry dilutes it, keeps it going. And then what further keeps it going, let's face it, is the Turks spilling into Europe and starting to conquer the Balkans. And somehow Europe has got to be defended against the Turks. What really brought the Crusades to an end, well, it was two things, I suppose. One was the fact that the Turkish menace <laughs> evaporated. And the other was the Enlightenment. And the scorn the Enlightenment thinkers had for, as Diderot said, c'est uh, guerre horrible these horrible wars. Do you think the word crusade is sometimes in danger of being misused? I think one has to be careful here. I think modern terminology is sometimes a lot less simple and a lot more complex than uh, one imagines. I'll give you an example of this. Osama bin Laden is not the only Islamist, not the only nationalist as well, to use the term crusade and crusaders and constantly. And his use of this term has an extremely interesting background. In the 19th century, it was very common for romantic imperialists in France and Britain in Germany and elsewhere to associate imperialism with crusading. There was a, a theme right through the 19th century which equated modern imperialists, as it were, with crusading and in a sense saw, really, very anachronistically, this was extremely anachronistic, saw the crusaders, as it were, returning with imperialism. Now, in the 1890s, the, uh, Abdul Hamid II, the Ottoman Sultan, who, let's face it, was under terrible pressure, losing large parts of the Turkish Empire to 
the West and to sort of independent movements in the Balkans. And in the course of this said, the West is fighting a crusade against us. The West has, has renewed a crusade. This was taken up, this, this idea proposed by him was taken up by Arab nationalists, particularly once the French and British had mandates in Syria and Palestine and the French and British popular press were banging on about the Crusades anyway. It reached a peak, the nationalists, the histories, a kind of theme that the West, having lost the first round of the Crusades, had returned, as it were, and were now using different and more sophisticated techniques, but were, were actually focusing, targeting on, on... So this reached a peak in Egypt in the 1950s. Nasser himself was patronising the production of a great many volumes in which not only was there constant talk of the Crusades now being rerun, but that the establishment of the State of Israel was an act of vengeance. It was on the very ground occupied by the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and here the Israelis were surrogates <laughs> for a Western crusading movement which was in fact imperialism. Now what happened was that Islamists becoming very much sort of stronger and more powerful in the Muslim world from the 1970s onwards, while they rejected utterly every other aspect of nationalist thought, because nationalists tended to be secular, they tended to be divisive, whereas Islamists think in the pan-Islamic terms of the unity of the whole of Islam, took up this idea. And in particular, their great ideologue, a man called Said Qutb, produced what he termed crusaderism, that behind imperialism lies crusaderism, and crusaderism is the old enemy, Christianity, out to destroy believers. And Said Qutb has had a huge influence on the whole Islamist movement, and in particular on jihadi Islamism, and... Um, so what they have done is they have restored ideology, whereas nationalists tend to think when they thought about crusades that crusades were simply masks for Western avarice and proto-colonialism and that that was, was back. The jihadis have restored ideology because behind all that there lies this Christian enemy still out to destroy Islam. And they've globalised crusading, whereas nationalists, Arab nationalists, simply thought in terms of Palestine, Syria, North Africa, now Uzama and others say, well, the Soviets in Afghanistan were crusaders. The, the Jews in Israel are crusaders. And so now this, is, this is actually a very interesting concept. And I have to say that I blame myself partly I and other crusade historians, for years we knew this sort of thing was being written and we dismissed it as rubbish. Now, most modern crusade historians are what is called pluralist. And pluralism proposes that true crusades, in every sense of the word, were not only fought in those theatres of war where the enemy was Islam, 
Palestine, Syria, the East, Mediterranean, North Africa and Spain, but also in the Baltic, in the interior of Western Europe. And the enemies of Crusaders are not only Muslims, but pagan Balts, uh, Shemanist Mongols, Cathar, heretics, even Catholic political opponents of the papacy. Now, once pluralism begins to spread, and it started to spread really from the late 1970s onward throughout the crusading sort of historiography, and is now the predominant position, the Muslims lose <laughs> their position as the prime opponent. You can no longer think of the Crusades just as a war with Islam. Jonathan Riley Smith's remarks about some recent Muslim understandings of the concept of crusade take us back to the issue I raised about the different perspectives from which religious history is viewed. In particular, he provides a partial answer to the question I posed of what a Muslim historical viewpoint might look like. Of course, not all Muslims would subscribe to the ideas Riley Smith outlines, any more than all Christians identify with a positive and heroic reading of the Crusades. Such views, though, need to be taken seriously by historians, not because they are accurate accounts of the past, but because they have been very influential in forming beliefs and attitudes in later periods. But it is not helpful simply to dismiss more partisan views of religious history as rubbish. They are themselves part of the history we are studying and have a legacy that has a potent influence on world views in our own day. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.